are listening to Holding Court with Patrick McEnroe. Thanks to Raya Eyewear for sponsoring this episode of Holding Court. I've been wearing Raya since last year. During the pandemic, I started teaching more lessons than ever before, especially outside. Raya are by far the best sunglasses for tennis I've ever used. Check them out at RayaEyewear.com. That's R-I-A-Eyewear.com. And use the code PATRICK to get $20 off your first pair. They are total game changers. All right, very excited about this edition of Holding Court, everyone. Patrick McEnroe here, my guest today, Katrina Adams, who uh, had a stellar career on the Pro Tour. A little, I would say similar to mine in that, Katrina, you were a really good doubles player. I was a pretty good doubles player, too. Decent in singles. You know, we had good careers in singles, but wouldn't say we were world beaters. But uh, I think both of us have been able to... Uh, stick around the tennis world for a long time in, in, in different ways, sometimes in, in similar ways. So, I, I, you know, it's funny when I look at your career, which is amazing, um, obviously as a, as a really good player on the tour, but more so what you've done after you left the tour. And I, I sort of look at myself sometimes, oh, yeah, I got pretty lucky to get into television and to become the Davis Cup captain and so on. You, of course, became the USTA president uh, in, in addition to serving on the board for so many years, not only once, but twice. So, so not only that never happened before, there was never an African-American who was president before, and, and there was never a, a former player who was president before. So I guess my question is, how in the hell did you pull all that off? <laughs> well, Pat, first of all, it's great catching up with you. And, uh, you know, we weren't that bad on the tennis court and singles. We might not have won a lot of titles and grand slams, but you <laughs> right. know, we're a pretty darn good tennis players overall. So let's not cut our, give, give us some flack on that one. I tell you, but, um, I, I, yeah, I, I, I have to say, I just I'm interrupt you for a second. Now that I've spent more time working with kids at our academy here, and I know you do the same in, in, in Harlem mm-hmm. at the Harlem Junior Tennis and Education a program, I, I realize you're exactly right. I mean, we, we, got, we actually got to the pros and became top 100 players in singles, which I realize now more than ever, is still very difficult to do. Absolutely. It's a huge accomplishment. But, uh, you know, listen, Thrills has had the, the career that I had. Um, Thrills have been out there with you. You know, we were at tournaments a lot. Yeah. And, you know, and, and thrilled with my role at the USTA, uh, particularly when you were the general manager of player development mm-hmm. and uh, Davis Cup captain. So um, it, it's nice to have this, Pat, as we do go way back. But, you know, I've been very fortunate in the sport. Uh, the sport has kind of given me the, the roadmap, if you will, and the opportunities that I've had traveling the world, meeting some amazing people. But overall, really having an opportunity to get back to the sport that has given me so much. And as you mentioned, through my NJTL program, the Harlem Junior Tennis and Education program, you know, serving the, the kids in Harlem as well as the metropolitan area, uh, providing tennis education and wellness uh, components. You know, it's a sport for a lifetime, and, and anything that I can do to make a difference uh, is rewarding for me. So you grew up in, in, the, in the west side of Chicago, and um, you talk a lot about your folks in, the, in your book, which I know you're out promoting as well, Own the Arena, which is a great read. Um, but how did you get started? I always ask my, t- my, my tennis guest, Katrina, you know, how they got started and in, in, in the tennis bug. And I know, I think you were pretty young, five or six when you started. So how did that happen to a young Katrina Adams growing up in Chicago? 
Yeah, I was six turning seven, and I was I stumbled on the sport. You know, I was a tag along sister with two older brothers who were in a in a program that was for ages nine to eighteen. So I wasn't allowed to be in the program. Uh, sat outside the fence for two weeks watching and and begging to be a part of it until I wore them down. Come on, Patrick, you know I wore people <laughs> I, down. I, I know how you and, can do uh, that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and. You know, when I got on the court, you know, I hit that ball over the net in the, in the middle of my racket and in the court and was hooked. Uh, I had great support from the from the coaches there and then ultimately my parents down the road to to continue to provide and offer the sport to me. And, and I took advantage of every opportunity that I had. But, you know, I was really lucky because this was a summer program. It was, it was headed by the uh, Martin Luther King Boys Club. Um, it wasn't the Boys and Girls Club then, but... You know, every summer was a different activity. That summer happened to be tennis, and uh, I'm just, you know, it was in the right place at the right time. Now, when you um, were playing junior tennis, obviously you were an excellent junior player. I mean, I went through this a little bit as well, but I was never, you know, quite good enough to think about going straight to the pro tour. Although Guillermo Vilas, who I used to practice with sometimes, Katrina in New York City, when I was, you know, I was I was 16, 17, so I was pretty highly ranked junior. He would practice with me, and he said, "What are you doing next year?" I said, well, "I think I'm going to go to college." He don't, don't go to college. He said, just go on the tour. You're ready. Go on the tour. So, of course, I ended up going to Stanford, which I, I don't regret for a second. You went to Northwestern, another great school in the Midwest. What was the decision-making process for you to decide to do that? Yeah, it was easy for me. I, I um, you know, back then, you, you kind of knew what the pro tour was because of your brother, John, and mm-hmm. Vilas, and Vitas, and everybody else that you had relationships with. I didn't really know what the pro tour was, what it meant how to get there, et cetera. So college was always in the forefront for me, although I had coaches that thought that I had the talent to be able to go directly mm-hmm. to the pros. You know, I played the pro circuit and challengers for uh, the summer leading up. So, you know, had some points, but I always wanted to go to college. I always had Northwestern in my purview, even though I wanted to go out West and, and get some uh, sunshine being from Chicago. But, um, you know, I, I love I loved my experience at Northwestern. You know, they were a top eight school when I when I joined the team, or top ten school. We won the Big Ten championship mm-hmm. my freshman year, and then I won the NCAA doubles title in my second year. And so that was kind of what sparked me to want to turn pro at that point because I obviously had won the doubles. I'd done well in singles at school, and I think I was going to be returning number three in the country on the collegiate rankings. And I said, you know, maybe now's the time. So mm-hmm. I was lucky to have a conversation with our assistant AD athletic director at NU and the coach to say, you know, allow me to take the fall quarter off. Cause we were on quarters. I think Stanford's on yeah, quarters. Stanford's quarters also, um, yeah. yeah. Allow me to take the first quarter off. I'll play as an amateur. Um, you know, I'm not sure if I want to do this weekend and week out, of course, over the summer that we were so used to doing that. But, you know, I was able to get my ranking up. I was a direct entry into the Australian Open. And so that was kind of a no-brainer for me when I when that ranking came out in December for me to make that decision to go ahead, call the coach and the AD and said, I'm off. Uh, thank you very much. Um, you know, because they were holding my scholarship if I said I wanted to return. And, and the rest is kind of history. Yeah, no, it sure is. And um, when you look at your, you know, I want to get into your post-playing career because to me that's it, it's fascinating. Obviously, you work in 
television quite a bit for Tennis Channel with CBS Sports Network, uh, the all-female sports show, We Need to Talk, which is excellent. Um, I know a little bit about the TV world myself, obviously, but, you know, I also know about the, the, yeah, the, yeah, the, the USTA <laughs> world, which I'm, I'm, I'm a little more intrigued by because they said I, I worked for you uh, at one point since I was um, working for the USDA and you were on the board. Uh, and I was actually on the board as well uh, early in my sort of post-tennis career. And I remember mm -hmm. serving on the board and thinking to myself, man, I don't, I don't know if I can do this. I mean, this is a lot of time and effort and um, it's, a, it's essentially a volunteer type job. And so, you know, and, and they, they put me on for a similar reason they put you on initially, ex-tennis, you know, ex-player. Like, they have, there's a quota that you have to have a, 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 a I think it's, is it two or three now, ex-players uh, on the yeah, board. Three. Yeah, on the board. So, you know, they sort of throw you a bone, right? But you actually, you committed to it and actually did the work other than just being a voice in the room. So just talk about how, you know, that that interested you, number one. And then I know you talk about, you know, people that help you, like like uh, Mayor Dinkins, who just passed in the last year, amazing man and, and supporter of tennis and the USTA and how he helped you in the boardroom and just, you know, kind of learning how to, how, to, how to participate in a way. But talk about, I guess my question is, why did you decide, okay, this is something I really want to stay involved with and not just as an ex-player? Yeah, I think, you know, when I, when I first got involved, I, when I retired, I actually became a national coach. Right. So for the USCA. And, you know, I was kind of working with those juniors that were going directly from the junior to the pros. Um, you know, boys and girls focused more on the girls, but I was a regional coach in the South. So, you know, I was fortunate to, to have had some time on the court, you know, with Carly Gullickson, Jamea Jackson, Shabia. Robinson, um, Robbie Ginepri, Brian Baker, you know, it was a great group of kids. And mm -hmm. when I stopped coaching and, and started commentating, um, you know, a couple of years later, I did get involved as a volunteer and joined the committee and, and going to that first annual meeting and seeing, you know, a thousand people who were so committed and passionate mm -hmm. about our sport who were giving their time. I'm like, wait a minute, what, what is this all about? Because, you know, as a player, you know you play USTA tournaments, you have right. a USTA ranking, you know, you play the US Open, and you don't really understand mm -hmm. um, everything that the USTA did. And, and then it, I started reflecting, going, wait a minute, I played on a USTA team, you know, in the summer. Wait, they funded me and other kids, mm -hmm. you know, to play the Nationals. Wait, I played on the USTA collegiate team. Okay, wait a minute, who is this USTA, you know? <laughs> right, right, right. So so once I, I really understood what their mission was and giving back and got involved, um, you know, and when it was time to join the board or apply for the board, you know, that you and Shriver and Garrison, I mean, you've got these big names that had contributed. I'm like, well, maybe, yeah, maybe this is the, the route to go. This is, uh, I'd love to get more involved. And, and so that's what I did. So, you know, when I, when I walked in the room, um, when I'm joining that board, I think Martin Blackman was the other player rep as right. well as uh, David Wheaton. So mm -hmm. we were the three elite athletes at right. that time. And, and once I really got to understand the mission and, and how much effort and time went into it, I was hooked because I was one of those fortunate kids, if you will, that um, really benefited from the support of the USCA 
but just the track and the pathway that was provided um, for kids. And, and so I said, I, you know, I definitely want to be a part of this. I want to, I want to give back to the sports that's given me so much. And, and then along the way, I wanted to say, no, I want to make the decisions to the sport that has, has given me so much. And, and after a few years on the board, you know, moving from elite athlete status to a director at large, uh, and then I realized that I added value. People saw value in what I brought to the table. And I just, it just persisted from there and, and then grew to the level of me saying, no, I actually want to be the leader of this organization. And um, that opportunity presented itself. Um, and I, that's what I became and, and was able to do it a couple of times. So, you know, hopefully what I've given to the sport of tennis, to the USDA, to U.S. tennis overall, um, has a long-lasting impact on our growth and development. Uh, particularly in diverse communities mm-hmm. and, you know, in, in years to come, maybe there's a, you know, maybe there was a, a legacy the cat left behind for, for tennis in America. This episode is being brought to you by Raya Eyewear. Over the last few years, a growing concern of mine has been the long-term effects of overexposure to UV rays from my extended time on court in the sun, you know, following that little yellow ball all over the globe. Well, I was also just tired of squinting on sunny days, but my fear was always that wearing sunglasses to protect my eyes would affect the way I hit the ball. Well, last year, especially during the pandemic last summer, I came across Raya, and I'm so, so glad that I did. Raya is changing the way tennis players see the game and protect their most important performance asset, their vision. All of their eyewear is handcrafted in Italy and built specifically to enhance ball contrast and provide protection from those harmful UV rays. There's no question that they help me see the ball better, they relax my eyes in the sun, and they've become an essential part of my tennis experience. Check them out at RiaEyewear.com. That's R-I-A-Eyewear.com. Use the code PATRICK to get $20 off your first pair. I promise you will love these sunglasses. I remember that myself too. When I was working for the USG and I went to my first annual meeting, I said, look at all these people. And they're like, you know, these are not people that played on the tour. And it's like, these people love tennis, man. I mean, these people are like giving their life to tennis. So you're right. I mean, that to me also, I used to love going to the annual meeting and it was a lot of work for me in my role, but I used to love seeing those people and it actually inspired me uh, in in a different way. Uh, When you talk about... Um, you know, working your way in the boardroom. And, you know, you talk about this a lot in your book, Own the Arena. Um, what, what are the things that you think that, that you, you learned along the way that helped you say, okay, this is, this is what, I, what you just said. This is what I want to do. I, I want to lead this organization. Yeah, I think once you start developing relationships with the stakeholders uh, within the sport, you know, our, our section leaders, our, our, our volunteers, our district leaders, et cetera, um, and people start to listen to, you know, your thoughts and embrace them. Um, you know, it made me realize that I had a lot to offer. And, you know, move, moving up in the USDA is not easy. No. And, you know, especially being that elite athlete, it had never been done before of an elite athlete to be an officer. And um, when I became the vice president, I said, oh, wow, they really, you know, people really value 
value what I have to say when I'm offering. And I actually was in that moment where I started to look at the business different. Mm -hmm. I started uh, preparing for meetings differently um, because, you know, as a volunteer, you kind of, sometimes you kind of go through the motions, you, you participate, but you're not really putting the extra hours into it. And I started putting the extra hours into, you know, really fine combing the board book and, and really trying to understand the business from the, from the budget side, the investment side, uh, et cetera. And, and I knew that I had something to offer. I knew that I could change the face of the organization. I knew I could change the face of the participants of the organization. I knew that I could embrace a different mentality um, in participation of the organization. And when I had that opportunity to do just that, I did. And I think that that, you know, that um, speaks with volumes when you, when you look out at some of the progress that we have on the uh, staff side, on the volunteer side, as well as on the participant side. Now, uh, there's, all of that is unbelievably uh, correct uh, and, and impressive. I don't know what's more impressive, that you became the president uh, as a first um, African-American, as a first ex-player. It doesn't matter. In fact, but by the way, there'd been no female presidents over the first like hundred years of the U, I think the USJ started in 1881 was the first president. All white men. Uh, the first female president was Judy Levering. That was at uh, I think 1999. So there were a couple female yeah. presidents in there uh, before you you came in. So I don't know what you know. I think they're all. I, I would guess to you they all mean the same. You know, is it is it being the f first ex player, being an African American? Is it a combination that sort of you're most proud of? You know, when you go, when you talk about your run. You know, I think it's all of it. Uh -huh. Yeah, I think it's all of it. I think, you know, listen, I remember Pam Shriver was on the board and, and wanted to go down that track. And, you know, the organization and the powers that be weren't ready for that. And I think Pam would have been excellent in, in that position, um, you know, given the opportunity. But she, she never got the opportunity to be that officer to, to be on that track. Um but, you know, yeah, the fourth woman is great, but obviously the first African-American, I would say, is the mm -hmm. one that has the most weight on it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's, it's great and sad at the same time, 135 years of the history, and, and there was not, you know, a person of color who, uh, you know, ascended to that, to that post. So, you know, being that first, also that first former player, I think added volumes to do people respecting us as business people as well? We're not just athletes. I think athletes get a bad rap in every sport of all we can do is, you know, dribble, throw, hit, and run. Um, but it proves, you know, differently in this situation for them to embrace that, uh, that characteristic and that talent in the boardroom. And then, you know, of course, Patrick Albert uh, was my successor immediately afterwards. Right. So, um, you know, so I think that's something that for, you know, years down the road, we'll have more and more uh, former players who are more engaged in the sport and, and really see the benefits of, of being involved in the USDA and wanting to make a difference. Um, but, you know, it's all those firsts are great. But again, like you said, it, it, for me, I don't want to be the last. So at least I've got the... Uh, former player category sewn up, uh, probably won't be the last, you know, though I'm the fourth woman, I'm sure there'll be other women, um, down the road, but, you know, trying to get that next African American or 
for next person of color is always uh, the challenge. And, and hopefully that will change, um, you know, in the future as well. Do you know who the first African-American or person of color was that was actually on the board? Was it Dwight Mosley? Mosley. Okay. I remember him. Okay. Yeah. Right, so right. Dwight, Dwight was uh, the first right. on the board and he was also appointed the treasurer at the time. Right. Um, 1993, and then um, unfortunately passed away the next year from leukemia. Mm. And then, of course, uh, Mayor, so, Dinkin, Mayor Dinkins for so many years. Uh, I got to ask. Yeah, you, so, yeah. you know, that's a, and that's, a, you know, listen, there have only been nine mm-hmm. um, African American board members in the history of the USDA. And just so, we, and just so everybody knows. Uh, so actually, I, I guess now 10, maybe right. 10 now, but when I wrote the book, there were uh-huh. only nine, and, and I think we have a couple of new ones on the board now, but, um, it's a challenge. Yeah. What do you think is resonating the most about the book? I read, I didn't read all of it, but I read a de- decent amount of it. I, you, you opened the book talking about that, that fateful night at, uh, the U S open with Serena and Osaka and the, you know, that whole dynamic of what went on in that match. And then you giving your speech as the president and, um, you know, mentioned a line, something to the effect of, you know, this is, isn't the way we wanted this to end. And then people took that as if to say, like, we wanted Serena to win, which, of course, wasn't what you meant. So then you had a whole, you know, uh, thing to deal with, with with my employer, ESPN and others just in the media world. So what was it like? I mean, you talk a lot about it in the book. It's fascinating um, for you to, to, to go. I mean, because I remember sitting there. When I was actually watching the match, literally, Katrina, from right behind, like, Serena's chair. Okay, I was like, I got right. Because ESPN had the, they have a little area there for the, the courtside mm-hmm. person. So I wasn't working the, the women's final. I literally was, you know, I came with my two daughters, my twin daughters. And um, they were, I guess, let's see, it was a couple of years, so they were probably nine or ten at the time. They don't know anything about tennis. But I got those just some seats because they're open seats. I couldn't get a, find another seat. So I'm sitting there watching. And I remember uh, midway through the first set, one of my daughters says to me, she says, Dad, um, I think Serena's going to lose. She's like, this other, this other girl's like really good. I said, you know, you might be right. But then when the, when the, when the whole f- the fracas happened, you know, as an, as an audience member, I had no idea what was ha- You couldn't hear anything, which I know was part of the right. problem. You know, for the fans, I had no idea what was going on. The rules weren't explained. And, and I literally could not hear anything. And Christopher Clary, who is a longtime writer for the New York Times, was sitting next to me. And he, he said, I think Serena just got a game penalty, you know, when that happened. So anyway, that's what turned the whole thing in, into really a chaotic environment, particularly post-match. So you go up there, which is normally, you know, a great, a great moment for the president to give the trophy out, to say some nice words about the tournament, about the players. And now you've got like the New York crowd going absolutely crazy, booing. What, what was the moment like for you to have to deal with all that in that situation? Yeah, no, it was crazy because like you said, being down there, you didn't really know what was going on. I had walked out right when all this was transpiring. And, you know, from the point, uh, from the love, from the 15 love point, and they're like, what do you mean on this 15 love, right? Right, right. And then immediately following the game and I'm like, what is going on? So I had to go inside to listen to your colleagues, you know, cause you can only hear right on television, mm-hmm. you know, and try to see if there's some replays, what are they saying? I'm not, I'm not understanding this. I missed all the activity. And so when it's time, to, you know, for the trophy ceremony and, and this place, you know, listen, Arthur Ashe stadium at night can definitely be raucous. 
normally in a good way, but this mm. was something that I had never, I mean, you could feel the vibration of the, of the booze going through your body. Um, and, you know, my heart went out for Naomi, who is just there, it's not tears of joy. This was tears of sadness. I'm mm-hmm. like, this girl just won the US Open. It's the first time I um, And then trying to come up with the words, you know, first of all, Serena takes the mic. Every, nothing is normal in this setting. Right. You know, nothing is routine, shall I say, um, from, you know, previous years that, you know, Serena speaks to the crowd, you know, before we really get going and trying to settle them down. Which, and, which I thought was great. I, 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 look, I didn't agree with what Serena did during the match. And I, I said just as much, you know, when anyone asked me and I, and I don't think she took the responsibility she should have for what happened. But that being said, I thought in that moment when she took the mic, that she actually saved it in some way. I mean, she got people to like, okay, like let's calm down, let's chill out, give Naomi her due. So I thought in that sense, she handled it really well. Yeah. I mean, it's, and so, and so now I'm trying to find the right words and, mm-hmm. you know, and, and really first of all, con- con- congratulating both players and then trying to, you know, say, gosh, you know, specifically after what Serena just done, to just let her know that, you know, you've, you've, you've had an amazing career and, and, you know, coming back and overcoming what you've come, blah, 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 blah. And then going on to congratulating Naomi. And, you know, I, and I was talking about no one wanted to see that match end in no. that way with, with all of the disturbances on the court, um, you know, and, and the, the, the uh, uproar of booze, et cetera. And, and those, that was the outcome that I was referring to. Right. Um, I just chose the wrong word. Um, but you know, in that moment, you're yeah. like, whoa, I mean, cause, and, cause, I mean, you're under a microscope. Right. And normally when you go out there, whether it's you as the president or me as a, as a, as an interviewer, as a commentator or whatever, you know, you're sort of given a script like, okay, especially when, and, and even more so when you're the president, because you know, you got to mention the sponsors. So there's a lot of like things you got to check off the list. Yeah. I had it in yeah. my hand. That right. was not the time to just be routine. No, you're right. You and, had to, and, you had to say I something. I would have right. overlooked. Yeah. I right. would have overlooked what was very, sensitive moment for for not only the players but for everyone and right. and so that was listen you know you you learn you live and you learn and um you know I was invited to your set the next day with Chris and Mary Jo to you know who were supporting me they knew they knew I had no ill will and my ill intent of my comments right and so I was grateful to be able to have that opportunity to to kind of you know clarify uh my thoughts and intent and but anyways, you know, listen, that was best. Listen, I, I pulled people in in the book with that opening, that opening um, chapter. And then, you know, basically the book is really a leadership book and, and hoping that people learn a lot from uh, my experiences in business and how I got there through the sport of tennis. I talk about the 12 uh, winning match points and, you know, from owning your courage, your choices, your voice you know, your, your village, your, your table, your possibilities, Mm -hmm. people, people can be inspired by some of the stories that I tell and that I share, you know, I get a little personal in there as well. Um, so people don't know me. I mean, I'm not, you know, even though I wrote a book, I'm not an open book. (laughs) (laughs) Right. It's well said, but you want to share, you, you want to be a, you want to be able to people to really feel you and, um, and your passion and your, your challenges as well. And, and so when speaking about, you know, getting ahead and making a difference and being successful as the only one, 
we have all been the only one in some arena at some point, whether you're the only mm -hmm. male, only female, only person of color, whatever that is, we've all been that. And you kind of know, hey, yeah, I'm a little uncomfortable walking in this space because I'm not used to being that person. Mm. You overcome it right away. You get over it, but you do recognize it. And, it. and it's really trying to help a lot of the young leaders who are moving up in business and uh, finding themselves in these predicaments and, and how they may be able to overcome it or, or utilize some of the messages in the book to prepare them for those moments if they haven't encountered them thus far. So I'm really proud of, of you know, the, the end result of the book. And, uh, and hopefully the, the messages resonate with, with every reader. Yeah, no, it's a great, great title to own the arena again by Katrina Adams. So before I let you go, Kat, I got to ask you this because I get asked all the time. Um, now that I, <clears throat> excuse me, don't work for the USTA, I, I can ignore a lot of the messages I get, you know, with the latest uh, no American man, you know, in the top 30. That was the latest. That was, you know, fairly recent. Hopefully that won't last that long. But when, you know, you've been there in every way, shape or form about, you know, what's the problem with American men? While we, of course, we, meaning our country, the United States, has women of all different backgrounds and levels, um, you know, coming up still there with obviously Serene and Venus still, still out there doing it. And, you know, so many great young players as well. Some that went to college, most that didn't. But on the men's side, we continue to struggle. So how do you answer that question, because I still get it a lot um, that, you know, what, what's yeah, the difference? Why does it happen? Why, why are we struggling on the men's side more than the women? Yeah. First of all, the world has opened up, you know, there's so much talent around the world, but you know, as Americans, we have, we have so many opportunities to do other things. When you look at professional sports, you know, for women, tennis is, is at the top of the list. The opportunities are there. We can make a great living. Um, it's a great opportunity. You know, you, you have the WNBA, you have soccer, you have hockey, you have softball, a lot of the other smaller sports. But mm -hmm. tennis is the richest sport for women mm -hmm. to get in, and the opportunities are enormous. So, you know, we, we excel in that sport. That's where we put a lot of our marbles in. For our men, it doesn't matter what your race, race or ethnicity is. There are a lot of other sports out there, basketball, football, soccer, hockey, et cetera. Um, and, and the opportunities are, are greater to get in these other sports. And unfortunately, there are more scholarship opportunities in the other sports than there are for tennis for men. You know, our, our women, we get six, which is great. But the men, I think, what, three and a half scholarships per team. So it, it is a challenge to say, mm, do I really stick with this sport? We have a lot of kids that are playing multi-sport, multi-sport. Right. And then they make a decision to say, you know, I, I got a better chance of getting a scholarship in baseball or football or basketball mm -hmm. than I do in tennis. And sometimes that's guided by the parent. Um, sometimes it's guided by, by the player. And I just hope that someday that we can, you know, have uh, a plethora of scholarships for our young men to go to college on a tennis scholarship that will help propel them. But even the talent that is there that goes out onto the tour and plays the challengers for a while and then to the tour, you know, it's just the, the, the athleticism from these, these players from around the world is so great. But it's also the mental, it's the mental drive that 
our foreign players have, which is very focused more so than, in my opinion, than from our American men, because we have so many opportunities to do other things. Whereas in the other countries, that's it. I got to put all my marbles here and, and this is my way out. This is my way forward. Um, better opportunity for my family. Yeah. I mean, and I tell this to parents or, you know, people all the time, if you have a five or six year old kid, if they're a boy or a girl and you know, the parents are, I mean, it doesn't even matter. They're they're. I mean, it matters of course, like the, the economics and the, the ability to do certain things. So tennis, you know, that plays into it a little bit, but if you're thinking, Oh, I, and not only do I, you know, I've chased it, let's chase the dream. Like I want to be the next Serena or the next John McEnroe or whatever it is. Um, if you're thinking, you know, as a, as a boy, you know, what's my best shot? Like you said, the other sports are, are, are bigger. You can make, um, unbelievable money and in tennis, you know, tennis for a woman, that's pretty much really the only sport. I mean, golf. Okay. You can make a darn good living in golf. I mean, but you could be a great softball player of which there are many lacrosse, you know, basketball, some of the great athletes that are women in those sports. I mean, they don't make anywhere near the money that the, the top tennis players in the world make. And I think it, in a lot of ways, like you said, that's a huge part of the challenge for us in this country. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. But, we got some great players out there right now. I mean, you know, looking at Riley. I think Riley had some good results on the on the red dirt over there this week. And, you know, Taylor, all those guys, are they're coming along. And, you know, when we could look at uh, Sebi, I mean, that, there's a good mm-hmm. crop of, of, of men that are there that are grinding. I think we'll have a lot of them in the main draw of French Open at Roland Garros. And, uh, and then we can see what can come of it. But, you know, hopefully we can have a full, uh, healthy summer of tennis here in the yeah. U.S. Yeah, that was going to be my... And that really was, yeah, that showcase was, our, our men. That was going to be my, la- my last question. How, what percentage of attendance fan-wise will we have at the U.S. Open? Just, a, you know, just a prediction. I know that could change, but give yeah, me a prediction. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, listen, you're in New York. I mean, the governor's opened it up for 100%. In, yeah. I think it's July 1st for, for outdoor uh, sports. So... Let's do you it. Know, do, do, will they shoot for 100? Will they shoot for 75? You know, I think at a minimum we'll probably have 75%. Okay, um, good. You know, based on, I mean, this is just my prediction. I'm not in the boardroom anymore. Right. So um, and I'm only saying that because of the, the state is open, the city is open. And New York, I think, is probably the safest city, the healthiest city in America. So those opportunities if we could stay that way, I think we'll open up the, the floodgates. But we'll, I'm sure we'll f- find out soon because it's uh, we're in the middle of May and, and ticket sales should be should be opening up soon. Yeah, well, I, I hope you're right. I was thinking 50%, but I like you're even more positive than me, 75. So let's, yeah. let's Come hope, on, man. Let's, let's do yeah, it. Let's, let's get go. New York back. Yeah, let's get 100%. Yeah. Why not? Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure to speak with you, Katrina. Good luck with uh, keep your book, Own the Arena, again, as the title. It's a great read, and uh, keep it going. I hope to see you uh, in person, you know, at a tournament soon, maybe Wimbledon, uh, certainly, if not that, at the U.S. Open. Thanks, Patrick. Looking forward to it, and uh, have a great summer. All right. All the best. Katrina Adams here on Holding Court. Holding Court with Patrick McEnroe is powered by Mudhouse Media.